Hey, Bobby Bones here. And recently I've been talking a lot about first responders. The people on the front lines deserve our thanks. If you want to show them that you appreciate them, do it with a gift card or by making a contribution to first responder organization, Team Rubicon, at giftcards.com slash thanks. Everybody loves gift cards, and now you can send one without ever leaving your home. It's time we celebrate the people taking care of us, first responders, at giftcards.com slash thanks. Gary Hoffman. Yeah. Shannon Farron. But I'm not going to brag about how much ass I kicked, but let's just say I kicked every single ass. Gary and Shannon. KFI 8640, more stimulating talk. Mo Kelly here for Gary and Shannon. It's Flashback Friday. The sounds of Howard Johnson, so fine. 1982. You what? You know what the top news story is? Guess who's coming to dinner? As they say, President Trump, Kim Jong Un have agreed, and I'll get into this agreement. Have agreed to meet, whatever that means. I found it strange that the announcement first came out of South Korea as opposed to the United States. If only because it would signify to me that then the Koreans, both North and South Korea, are dictating how this rolls out. Yes, yes, I know the president will get to decide as far as the terms of the meeting and how it will progress, where they'll meet, how they'll meet, what will be on the table? But initially, as far as the rollout is concerned, I found it odd that it was confirmed first by South Korea as opposed to the United States. Because this is about optics. This is about power. This is about legitimization of a dictatorship and that regime. And yes, I'll get to what happened back in 2007. When then candidate Obama said that he would be open, open, not would, but open to meeting with Iran regarding their nuclear power without preconditions and how that was responded to as opposed to right now. But I, I will say this. If the end result is that North Korea, Korea gives up its nuclear ambitions altogether scraps its nuclear program, then all credit, not some of the credit, not a portion of the credit, but all credit would go to President Trump because he would have gotten us to that finish line, period, point blank. But if this goes south, conversely, all the blame would go to him. I'm not exactly sure the why or the timing of this. I don't know why the president would agree to... No, wait, let me put it another way that everyone understands. The nerd, let's go back to high school. The nerd has been asking out the prom queen since the beginning of time. The average Joe, or a band geek like me, has been going after the most beautiful girl in the school or the supermodel later on in life since the beginning of time. 
in this analogy, North Korea has been asking to meet with the president of the United States. This invitation is not new in and of itself. Because North Korea wanted to be on the same stage, pun intended, as the prom queen, as the most beautiful girl in the world, as the biggest and the baddest in the world, the United States of America. It's not news that Kim Jong-un or North Korea would even ask for this meeting or this sit down. They've always wanted this meeting. The news is our president said yes. Our president seems to be of the opinion there's nothing wrong with talking. And ostensibly, I would agree with that. But then we have to wonder, what's in it for us? What do we get out of this sit-down? Because I'll tell you, as we go behind the scenes here in, like, radio, there are many times we'll put a feeler out, we'll put a request out for a guest to come on the program, and then they say publicly, yes, can't wait to come on your show, let's, let's set up a meeting, what have you. And then all of a sudden, they decline later on, schedules change, or they just all together just go away. Because this agreement has happened publicly, it does not in any way suggest that that's actually going to happen. But I have to ask the question, what's going to be in it for us in terms of this initial meeting? Now, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, has said that these are just talks not negotiations. So that really begs the question, what's in it for us? What are they going to do? Is this just about having brunch? I thought the goal was denuclearization of North Korea, not Netflix and chill, not just a kickback, not just hanging out. We don't have diplomatic relations with North Korea. They can Skype. They obviously can tweet to each other. What is the point of a face-to-face meeting between these world's leader, these world leaders. What do we get out of that? I'm clear what North Korea gets out of that. They said they're going to stop their nuclear testing. And it could start the next day after that. If these are just talks and denuclearization and negotiations are not actually going to be part of this event, this meeting, this sit-down then what's in it for us, the United States? I know what's in it for North Korea. They get to say to the world that we're on the same level and the United States respects us and the bell of the ball is coming to sit down with us. And then there are other optics. And someone hit me on Twitter, Mo, you're just a Debbie Downer. Yeah, I'm very cautious about these things. These are high stakes meetings. These are very important, not only at the present, but to the future of our nation and also the stability of the region. I have to wonder how these optics are going to play out. Are you going to have the leader of the free world, presumably, travel around the world to the Asian peninsula at the behest of North Korea? They ask for the meeting, the president accepts, and then our president is going to go over there? That's one set of optics, which could be problematic. And there's another set which could be equally problematic. Would you accept Kim Jong-un as a guest of this president in the White House? Would that make you feel comfortable? And I'm looking at Amy King. And I don't know if she's shaking her head in agreement with me. I don't want the meetings here. 
Right. Right. The optics do matter. Yeah. It matters where this meeting would happen, under what circumstances, who gets to dictate, and what specifically and explicitly is the point of it. Is it just to get together to to see how they are in person so we can do some uh, intelligence gathering on the other world leader on both sides? What do we want to come out of this if the end goal is not on the table? I don't know, but if Donald Trump likes ratings, he's going to get them. I don't know if this would be televised because we know the DPRK, North Korea, controls all imagery as it relates to, you know, dear leader Kim Jong-un. Every photograph as far as their state-run media, that's where the negotiation actually does begin in terms of how this is going to play out because they're not going to let six-foot-one Donald Trump, I don't care what the doctor said, six-foot-one Donald Trump stand next to five-foot-six Kim Jong-un. Unless they put him on a box like they did with uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone and who was the heavyweight boxing guy at the time. Was it Lennox Lewis? No, it was Cooney Clooney. Uh, Jerry Cooney. Jerry Cooney? Yeah. So Jerry Cooney was this big heavyweight boxer, and Sylvester Stallone's about 5'8". Maybe. <laughs> so they put him on a box when they did their Time Magazine cover photo. So maybe they'll do that. They would do that, or you know, they put him, I'm not trying to be funny, but they put him in a high chair maybe. So if they're both sitting down, their heads and faces would be on the same level. Because the optics are important. The opti- optics are so very important. I think even if they don't televise the meeting which they probably won't do the meeting but anything around it like will i was thinking this morning i was like would they shake hands would they just glare at each other i mean what is it i'll be watching and not only that how we ultimately report on the meeting will be very different from how north korea will will report on the meeting and i have to worry in terms of whether we've given up too much in the beginning going back to my analogies about the nerd asking out the prom queen or the average Joe asking out the supermodel. It only matters when the prom queen or the supermodel says yes. And we've said yes. And that sends a message to the rest of the world. If this country, North Korea, which was originally a part of the axis of evil, as George Bush said, President Bush said back in, I think, in 2002. If we are going to do this for this quote-unquote, rogue nation, are we in fact then negotiating with terrorists? Are we then sitting down with rogue nations and then saying the way to legitimacy is to get nuclear weapons? Are we then validating everything that North Korea has done since the Korean War? And let's not forget, part of the reasons why we don't have diplomatic relations is because technically we're still at war. There was a truce determined and like an armistice, but there there was not actually a formal end to the war. That's why we have the demilitarized zone. We're just not shooting at each other. North Korea probably is struggling because of the sanctions. But what do we have to offer? What is it that the United States is going to have to give in response What motivation does North Korea have to give up its nuclear arms when nuclear arms got them to the table, literally? Why in the world would they give them up? Oh, yeah, I I heard you. You said because they want the sanctions lifted. Well, the sanctions haven't stopped them from moving forward. The sanctions have made them uncomfortable. And lifting the sanctions 
in this hypothetical and having North Korea disarm only puts them back from where I sit in the same position they were before all this started. There was a time in which there weren't any sanctions and North Korea has framed its whole regime around the idea that they need the nuclear weapons for survival. If you take the nuclear weapons away, then most likely the regime of Kim Jong-un comes to an end. What is in it for North Korea? And in other words, what is in it for North Korea and what is it that we would have to give them above and beyond sanctions in which they would agree to, to end their nuclear proliferation or the progress of their program? I'm not a believer that they're serious or sincere. I may be wrong. In fact, I hope I'm wrong. I actually hope that President Trump is able to do what previous administrations were unable to do. I do believe with all my heart that Kim Jong-un is homicidal. I don't believe he's suicidal. But I do believe he's serious in his intentions. I do believe that he's not someone to be toyed with. I do believe that he would wage war against South Korea and and by extension, the United States in a heartbeat. I do believe that if it came to that, this is a problem we obviously have to deal with. And yes, there has to be someone who's willing to take the first step. But when the supermodel and the prom queen is the one who's taking the first step, it makes it look like the prom queen and the supermodel asked the nerd out or the average Joe out. In terms of international diplomacy, the optics always matter. That's why we usually have back-channel communications between lower-level people, or we'll send a secretary of state. There's another thing. I don't know why Rex Tillerson wasn't actively involved in this proceeding. Yes, I understand there is a narrative now being forwarded that you want just the players who can make the decisions. You want Kim Jong-un and President Trump, the decision-makers, the deal-brokers, But the diplomacy and the lower level functioning employees have a place in this process. Going back to the optics, South Korea announced this. Why? The president of the United States agreed to a meeting and it didn't come initially from the president of the United States. Do you know what that sends to the world in terms of a message? The optics matter. It suggests I don't agree with it, but it does suggest, especially to those on the Asian peninsula, that the president of the United States is not dictating the terms. He may be, but it seems odd when it's not coming from the White House, but in fact, the White House has to respond. And I I mentioned how this was eerily reminiscent of a similar situation within candidate Obama and Iran. And just in case you don't remember, let's go back to 2007. Barack Obama and John McCain, Senator McCain, were in agreement that the Islamic Republic of Iran was dangerous and the regime was out to get nuclear weapons. And its hostile statements about Israel and its support of terror groups could not be ignored. And the amount of danger to the region and instability to the region could not be denied. If you go back to a debate on July 23rd in 2007, it was a Democratic debate, and the candidates were asked, 
whether they would be willing to meet separately without precondition during the first year of your administration in Washington or anywhere else with the leaders of Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Cuba, and, wait for it, North Korea, in order to bridge the gap that divides our countries. And then Senator Obama said, I would. And his answer is, the reason is this, that the notion that somehow not talking to countries is punishment to them, which has been the guiding diplomatic principle of this administration, is ridiculous. Talking about the Bush administration. And then Senator Obama caught holy hell. Yes, I know, much of that was about politics. If he said blue, pun intended, then everyone opposing him would say red. But this is about principles, not partisan politics. If the principle is we should seek to find common ground with those or with whom are standing in opposition of us, and if the goal is the denuclearization of a country like Iran or North Korea or better stability with a country like Cuba, which ultimately we did have, why would we not talk to them? Let me put it another way. If it was a bad idea then, then it's a bad idea now. And if it's a good idea now, then it should have been a good idea then. Can we agree on that? If we look at what has been going on in Cuba, it seems like the Trump administration wants to roll back the advances that we've had in Cuba using the same rhetoric and reasoning as to what was used in 2007. I always want some consistency and some semblance of sanity in our national discussions. And let me again be clear. I hope with all my heart that President Trump is successful in his endeavor to denuclearize North Korea. That's a win for everyone. That's a win for the whole world. But it's fair and reasonable to wonder what we will have to offer, what we've already given up just to have a face-to-face meeting. What in the world are we getting out of this? If North Korea comes to this face-to-face meeting and they've gotten everything they've wanted, they've been asking asking us out on a date for decades now. Now they've got the date, and after they sit down, and then they turn around and say, you know what, we're good, we're fine. The first date was enough. We're going to go back to go ahead, going to go back and go ahead with our nuclear dreams. Then what? Then we end up with egg on our face, and then we're further apart than ever before, I would argue. These are high stakes. There's a lot at stake here. Not only the reality of whether North Korea remains a nuclear state, but also our place in the world if we mess this up. And diplomacy is not something that you can do by the seat of your pants. You can't negotiate these types of deals via Twitter. You can't overestimate your position just because of the history of the United States. But you have to take into account the the present reality, the present mood of the world, the present and possible consequences. I am all for diplomacy. I am all for sitting down at the table, even with adversaries, but I'm not for doing it in a fly-by-night sort of way. I don't like at this point how seemingly North Korea has been able to dictate the terms and the timing. 
I don't like how North Korea has been elevated on the world stage in a way which legitimizes how they've been holding South Korea hostage. I don't believe that just because they played nice for a week or two and showed up at the Olympics that we're doing ourselves any favor by having our president meet Kim Jong-un on his level as opposed to requiring him to come up to our level. The goal was not for him to pause in his nuclear tests. For all we know, they don't have a nuclear test planned until August. And they're saying this meeting is going to take place in May. We don't know that they've actually sacrificed anything with the exception of doing an actual test. We said our sanctions are going to continue. Then we might as well assume that their tests on some level are going to continue. Their research is going to continue. Their work in a nuclear sense is going to continue. They haven't lost anything. They haven't sacrificed anything. And in effect, they haven't offered anything. I want this to go well. And there's no guarantee that it's even going to happen at this point. We know that all the bluster which preceded this could start again tomorrow via Twitter. One remark could, sorry, blow all this up. And now we're right back to square one. This this has to happen very cautiously, cautiously, slowly, and with a great deal of care and concern for the optics. I'm hoping for the best. I want the best. I desire the best. I want President Trump to win on this one. Make no mistake. But we have to be cautious in how we proceed. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Blake. All right. Is that the great Ken band? That's no, a Steve Miller band. Steve Miller band. I always get them mixed up. Excuse me. Golly. Love that song. Keep it coming all Friday morning long. Flashback Friday. Stormy Daniels. She's back in the news. And just in case you did not know who she was very quickly, she is the adult film actress who has been alleging that she was in a sexual relationship with candidate Trump, I should say private citizen Trump, back in 2006. And then during the campaign was paid off to the tune of $130,000 to not talk about the, the relationship. When the name Stormy Daniels first hit the news, the Trump administration and personal lawyer for Donald Trump said that this was all untrue. There is no fact to be found in terms of whether this relationship took place and Stormy Daniels was lying. I'm paraphrasing, but they denied the relationship ever happened. And I was wondering, well, either the payment happened or it didn't. And the Wall Street Journal reported and were first to report about the $130,000 payment. And that said to me, well, the Wall Street Journal usually gets their financial facts right. It's hard to really dispute them. But now, as the story has further evolved, it has now been brought to light that there was a nondisclosure agreement that the Trump administration does acknowledge exists. 
And there's a, an NDA dispute about whether Dave Dennison was actually Donald Trump and whether it was signed and whether it was legally binding. Here's the problem, one of many. And then I'll get into my thoughts about the relevance of Stormy Daniels, if at all. How can this administration deny the existence or the legal implications of an NDA if the supposed events contained in the NDA did not happen at all? First, you deny that there was a relationship, and now you're having to explain whether there is an NDA and under what circumstances and whether Trump knew about the payment of $130,000 when originally there was no $130,000 payment, or at least so we were told. How does that reconcile? How, how does that square? Now, here's my issue or thoughts about Stormy Daniels. I don't care whether private citizen Donald Trump was having a sexual relationship with a porn star. And honestly, with the exception of my feelings about um, infidelity and adulterous affairs, I don't care that he was allegedly cheating on Melania. I do care, though, if there was a $130,000 payment as hush money paid to her allegedly one week before the general election which may be a major campaign violation. And if we all remember history, this was very similar, if not exactly the same in nature as what happened with John Edwards as he was running for president. We all have no love lost for him, what he was doing when he was running around on his wife. Same thing. My only interest is, was this done to cover up something in the week before an election, and was it done legally in terms of the manner it was done? Well, all this is going to come out soon enough because Stormy Daniels has recorded an interview with 60 Minutes. So NDA or not, and if you don't know, the NDA says that if if Stormy Daniels were to violate it, she would have to pay something about about a million dollars. A million dollars. Per violation. Per violation. And I don't know if that counts in terms of one interview or one statement. I don't know exactly how that works out. But I would not be surprised if someone like Larry Flint, who had already proposed and and put up money for dirt on Donald Trump during the campaign, if someone like that wouldn't come forward on the sly and say, Stormy, don't worry, I have your back. If there's any legal proceeding against you, I would pay that in violation for any violation of the NDA. And I suspect there are plenty of people who are clamoring for her story and would pay that off if need be. But she's going to have a 60 Minutes special. They have not set a date. It's not going to be on this Sunday, but she's, I guess, going to tell her whole story. And I think it's going to be with Anderson Cooper, who's like a special correspondent for 60 Minutes. Do I care? Only about the proposed criminality, the alleged criminality. That's the only thing I care about. I mean, I do care about the decision-making of a man of whether he's going to be cheating on his wife while she was pregnant and just had a child, allegedly. Yeah, I think that figures into the equation. But I'm more concerned whether this was done right before the election. Because Donald Trump, the private citizen, I don't care. Donald Trump, the president, I absolutely care. 
And Donald Trump is who he is. I don't think anyone was under any illusion. I mean, the only reason we knew about Marla Maples was because Donald Trump was cheating on Ivanka with Marla Maples. And the only reason we knew about all of his other proclivities and, and activities is because Donald Trump was very upfront with his wild lifestyle and things that he was up to. I don't think that that just all of a sudden stopped in 2006. Not at all. Not because he had a new wife in his life, but once he becomes a presidential contender, then everything he does during the campaign, especially financial transactions, becomes an issue for me. And if our then-candidate Trump did in fact pay $130,000 through a shell corporation to hide the fact that he was cheating on his wife to either the general public or his wife and use campaign funds in which to do it, then you have a right to know as an American citizen, I have a right to know, and we together have a vested interest in finding out if it was done, why it was done, and it should be handled by the appropriate authorities. Now, if it rises to the level of a serious offense, handle it accordingly. If it's no big deal, handle it accordingly. But I would like to know one way or the other what actually happened. And $130,000 is very difficult to hide in, in a financial sense, especially when you're talking about an agreement which has an NDA. There is a documented paper trail for all this as far as where the money came from, through through which hands it flowed, who accepted the money, who spent the money, and who signed the contracts. It's not all that difficult. But we all have a right to know, and I'm curious to know. Outside of that, I'm not going to give Stormy Daniels any type of credit. It's a porn star. Let's be real. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And each month, you know, the first week of the month or so, I'm always eagerly anticipating what the job numbers are going to be. When I was growing up, I was a stats geek nerd, so I like numbers and being able to follow trends and seeing if there are larger trends at work other than just the numbers of a momentary week or month. And this month was good news and bad news. The job numbers, good news. Good news for America, good news for the Trump administration. Job growth up to uh, 325, do I have that right? 325,000? No, 313,000 new jobs in February added. And it's the best month we've had since July of 2016 in which the economy added 325,000 jobs. Unemployment stayed at 4.1% for about the fifth month in a row. That's all good news. That's all very good news. But if we go deeper, there's some other things we have to at least be mindful of. Wage growth has slowed. Originally, it was estimated that it was going to be some 2.9% in January, That had to be readjusted down to 2.8%. And in February, wage growth went down to 2.6%. What does all this mean? 
Well, it's good news for this month, and we'll see about next month. But it's all moving in the right direction. And ultimately, I'm rooting for America, so it's moving in the right direction. So it's all good in that respect. I do think that inevitably there will be a recession maybe before the end of 2018. I do believe that our stock market is more volatile than I would like as someone who dabbles. That does have me a bit concerned. And also, I have to take the good with the bad. Although there were good signs coming out in terms of the job market, I look at other things like, and this really hurt my heart. I know Amy King saw this story. Toys R Us is liquidating U.S. operations. Poor Jeffrey the giraffe. We knew that they were going through bankruptcy and they were going to try to reorganize their business and stay alive, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. It is sad to see all these stores. I mean, I, I love online shopping and stuff, but I remember, you know, being a kid, we used to go into Toys, Toys R Us and yes. we, we couldn't afford anything in Toys R Us, but we would just walk around the aisles like it was Disneyland. And dream. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's just sad that you kids don't get to just go and see everything. Of course, then the parents don't have to deal with, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? You know, so maybe. Well, they can. They just parents. ask for other things which aren't toys. Yeah. They want smartphones and tablets and consoles, but they don't actually want toys where kids have to use their own imagination. And I'm a, Kids, was, you're missing out. I was a Toys R Us kid. I was a FAO Schwartz kid. Oh. Yes. Talk <laughs> about the, not being able to afford, afford stuff. <laughs> FAO Schwartz, for those who don't know, that was the high-end toy seller. They And they had, do they even still have the catalog? Are they around anymore? I don't, I don't they know. They had I those look catalogs, and you would just just practically wet yourself because they had the coolest stuff. The coolest. It was like the sharper image, if you remember the sharper image, but for kids and toys. What was, was it? FAO Shorts, was that the movie uh, with the keyboard and big, big? Yes, correct. The, FAO the Shorts. Keyboard, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, my goodness. That was a great story. Yeah, the whole idea of a toy store is now antiquated. What have we become, America? So sad. I love Toys R Us. I love FAO Schwartz. If anything, because it allowed us to be kids for a time. I'm not so sure kids today actually have an age of innocence. They can turn on the radio and hear everything which is adult in nature. Obviously, they can turn on TV and see anything and everything which is adult in nature. They can use that aforementioned smartphone or tablet and surf the web and see anything in nature. I'm not so sure kids today have any age of innocence. I remember when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was still trying to figure the world out. I was still trying to figure out myself going through puberty. I was trying to figure out how all these things would work together. I had an age of innocence. And I wish more children today would have an age of innocence. I wish children today, I know I'm conflating issues and stories, I wish today children didn't have to grow up with the reality of mass school shootings. But they do. They understand it. They know the history of it. They know the dangers which are posed to them every single day, not just at school, but just life in general. They're not separated from the harsh realities of the world in which you and I were once upon a time. Amy King was. I'm not so sure about Blake. He grew up, he's, you're a millennial by every definition, aren't you, in terms of, when were you born? 91, yeah, I'm very oh, yeah. much a millennial. Yeah. Yeah, 
And no. proud of it. Did oh, you grow yeah. up with yeah. Toys R Us? No, we didn't go to Toys R Us. My mom didn't take us there because uh, she wasn't going to buy us the stuff there. <laughs> so, but I'm also, the, I'm also the youngest of three, uh-huh. so I ended up with a lot hand-me-downs. of hand-me-downs. But I'm also the youngest of three by kind of a big gap. So I, 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 I was a very much a mix of hand-me-downs and my own stuff. But she wasn't going to take me into Toys R Us because the, hey, I want that, hey, I want that wasn't going to fly anyways. Right. So it wasn't even worth the, the walkthrough. But you were born in 91. Yeah. Do you remember having an age of innocence? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, okay. I was a sheltered child. Okay. I learned a lot in middle school. Do you think that's part of possibly growing up in a law enforcement family? Um. It's a portion of a law enforcement family. My mom was a preschool teacher, so there's that aspect of it. And I grew up in Glendora, which I don't know how much time you spent in Glendora, but Glendora is very much a bubble where it's kind of not a lot happens in Glendora. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty quiet town. So I think you put all those things together and the fact that I was the youngest by a big chunk where mm. my, my brother and sister went and did their own thing. I wasn't like learning life with them while they like we didn't discover things together. They had their discoveries 10 years before I did, and they were mature enough to know he doesn't need to know these things. He doesn't, we're not going to expose him to these things. So I think there was a, a few different things that put together to make that. The reason I bring all this up, when we come back at the top of the hour after the Amy King newscast, California teens are pre-registering to vote. You want to make a guess in terms of which party they're registering for? We'll tell you when we come back. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. All right, come on, everybody. Don't take it. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. That's the most beautiful aspect of music. It can bring about the most powerful emotions inside of us. I say it's the closest thing we have to a time machine, taking us back to exactly who we were at that moment when we loved that song or even hated that song. Even the songs we don't like still have that strong connection and powerful connection to a time in our life which we may have forgotten about altogether. That takes me right back to when I was maybe a teenager trying to find my way in life. And even as a teenager, I was very, very actively involved in studying politics. I remember sitting around the TV with the rest of my family and watched both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention And talking about the different platforms, I had no idea that I would actually be talking about it on the radio some 30 years later. But even back then, the whole political process was amazing to me. The complexity and also simplicity of it, complexity in terms of how we determine our eventual presidential candidates, the histories of the parties. Because back then in the 70s, we really did not have primaries in the way that we do today. Back in the 70s, not every state had a primary. It wasn't until maybe 1976 or so did both parties have primaries in all 50 states. Not everyone remembers that. How did they do that then? 
Yes, like they just like handpicked a few states. Handpicked a few states. People forget Republican Party, Democratic Party, and even uh, the Green Party, and also Peace and Freedom. These are all private organizations. Think of it more as like a marketing study, uh, a focus group, where they take a sampling and they say, "I wonder what's on people's minds as far as a preferential candidate," and they will do a sample. It's not to be confused with like a public election, which is run by the Secretary of State and the state more broadly. These are private organizations. So they don't have to have a primary in all 50 states. They've eventually gotten to the point where they've chosen to. And that was a very important distinction where I think people could not understand what happened, especially in the Democratic Party, in terms of Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Think of it like this, and I've said this on the radio before, and you've heard it before, just bear with me. Let's say the Democratic Party was McDonald's. And they do a focus group, a study, wondering if people would be open to the idea of purchasing hot dogs from McDonald's. And they go from state to state, and they have different polls. They have you vote. And at the end of the day, hot dogs came back as the most popular food item for McDonald's to sell. But they were only asking your opinion. Because McDonald's, the corporation, the private com- uh, the, the private entity... They still have the final say. And to link this to uh, Hillary and Bernie, at the end of the day, Bernie could have won every primary, got every vote, and still the Democratic Party could say, thank you very much. We, the corporation, we're in the business of selling hamburgers, and Hillary Clinton is our nominee. Give you another example. In the, in the way that the Democratic Party could have done that with Hillary – that's how Gary Johnson can be the official nominee of whatever party. And Jill Stein can be a part, uh, the, the nominee of the Green Party after a weekend meeting or a convention at a hotel. As private entities, they can select their presidential candidates however they want. It so happens that the parties can ask you and me for input. But they get to decide how those primaries work. That's why you can have the Democratic Party say, well, we don't want to have an open primary. We don't want to have independents. We don't want to have Republicans having a say in who we may choose to be our presidential nominee. As opposed to an actual election, a public election where, no, you can vote in any election and you can vote for whomever you want. That's really interesting. I did not know that. It's sort of like the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, because like with the figure skaters, they had the top three finishers, mm-hmm. but they didn't all go to the Olympics. They took the fourth place finisher instead because the because the they Olympic could people <laughs> have the right to do that. It's their decision. But with all that in mind, Amy King, as young people tying this into being less innocent and more active and aware, not only in a worldly sense but a political sense, it seems that especially here in California. Teens more and more are pre-registering to vote, but not choosing a political preference. They're not choosing to be a Democrat or Republican. They are just declining to state. In other words, they're registering to become independents. And me, honestly, that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. I believe the whole idea of a political party is not only antiquated, but it's counterintuitive to how a democracy should work. One person, one vote. 
and we can get into the electoral college in terms of the weight of votes relative to state to state. But but that's a different discussion for a different day. But California teens, 16 and 17-year-olds, if you didn't know, they could pre-register to vote as they've changed the law in anticipation of when they turn 18 and can start voting. And I'm quite sure the political parties thought, well, this is a good opportunity to start marketing, going back to the business aspect, marketing ourselves to these future voters, the people who are protesting or the people who are organizing, but too young to vote, you start getting them in this political process. Now, 88,700 teenagers have used this process during the first few months of of its existence, and most of them, it doesn't give an exact number, but let's say it's more than 44,350, since they say most, most of them declining to identify as either Republicans or Democrats. Now, whether they should change that come 2020 or even 2018 in November, I don't know. But if anything, I'm for an independent conscience going in. I'm for a young person learning more about the civic duties of their elected leaders, learning more about what a mayor does, what a governor will do, and then learning about the specific people who are running for office, their platforms, the types of policies they support, and then making a decision relative to the individual as opposed to straight ticket voting because they are a quote-unquote Democrat or Republican. In a perfect world, that's what I want for America. Well, yeah, because you don't have to. I mean, I don't agree with some of the things for my political affiliation by any stretch of the of the of the whatever. It's funny. People don't believe me when I say this, but I vote for Democrats and Republicans freely. And anyone who knows what a party is and what a party does, local politics is very different from national politics. Local party representatives oftentimes are very different than the national agenda. In other words, the person who I may want for mayor may not be in the same party as the person I want for president because they're speaking to two different audiences, two different constituencies. And what I want here in, quote, unquote, Los Angeles may be different from what I want in terms of the national dialogue and this national discussion as far as where this country is being moved forward, jobs, economics, immigration, and so forth. Different questions that are being asked, different answers are being offered. This online sign-up system automatically registers these teenagers to vote on their 18th birthday as long as they're a U.S. citizen and California resident. I know what some of you are thinking. How do we know that these are legal voters? Yes, it verifies that. The largest block of the pre-registrations, almost 44%, were by teens who said they had no party preference. Preference, California's version of an unaffiliated or independent voter. That's me. I'm a decline to state. Those who wanted to be Republicans were especially few and far between, making up only 10.3% of pre-registrations. So in terms of strict analysis as far as the future of California, if you want to bring political parties into it, California is getting bluer. In terms of strict numbers, if you look at these pre-registrations, 
37% of these teenagers selected the Democratic Party, which means in terms of the 2018 and 2020 elections, those who've chosen a party are heavily favoring Democrats, which has all sorts of ramifications in terms of your local leaders, your congressional representatives, and how that's going to play out in many ways. And if you're not a Democrat, that's not necessarily good news for you, but I'm not a fan of the two-party system. And people say we should do away with parties altogether. No, we just need stronger third and fourth options. We've had other parties for many years. It's just a function of they don't necessarily have any infrastructure because our political system is built on money. They don't have the political infrastructure to fund candidates on the local level and also the national level. And here's one of my major complaints with the Green Party, for example. People may be a fan of Jill Stein. I'm not one of them. But my problem with the Green Party is you only hear about them doing anything is when they select someone to run for president every four years. Now, if the Green Party were about the business of electing people on the lower levels and then moving up through the political structure, then, yes, you could have someone feasibly then run for president. But if you're not demonstrating that you can lead on a local level or even a a statewide level, then why would anyone entrust you with the, the, the possibility of becoming president of the United States? And more and more, I think, young people are learning civics. More and more people are better understanding the whole point of it all. And even today in my conversation with Amy King about the political parties, that's a conversation I've had with people now for years because they're still upset about what happened to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I said, you guys don't understand. The Democratic Party, as shady as it might have sounded, they can do whatever they want in terms of making sure that their presidential candidate that they're going to offer and put on that ballot is representative of their core ideals and beliefs. Bernie Sanders was, is, and will always be an independent. He may happen to caucus with the Democrats, but he's always been an independent. He was an interloper. He used the Democratic Party so he could get access to not only their voter rolls, but he would have fundraising behind him, and he would also be part of the Democratic debates and get the type of national exposure that he would not have received if he ran as an independent. He used the party, and the party used him. Yes, the party had no inclination to have Bernie Sanders represent the Democratic Party going into the election. And I know it hurts your heart to hear that, but it's only because you don't understand the process. It's the same process that gave you Jill Stein for the Green Party. You didn't vote for her. They didn't survey 50 states. That's just the way it is. But in response to that, and what really, really, really warms my heart is that especially in California, teenagers are pre-registering 
they're getting involved, they're learning the system, they better understand that the parties are only in it for themselves and declining to further feed into that monster. They're declining to state a preference and more willing to be open to people who may be in either party, both parties, but they're more taking a step back and seeing where their personal interests lie as opposed to aligning themselves with a brand, and that's what it comes down to, a brand. The Democratic Party is a brand. Not a good-looking brand right about now, but it's still a brand. The Republican Party is a brand. And teenagers, I'm going to call them kids for right now, are very sensitive to the brands in which they wear. The designer labels, the shirts in which they wear, the shoes they buy, the products they put up, that they endorse on Instagram, they are supremely and keenly aware in terms of whom they associate with and what brands they're going to be associated with. And if anything, which has come out of this social media generation, is the understanding that whom you associate with is particularly important to one's identity. And kids don't want to go around saying that they're a Democrat. Kids don't want to go around saying, in a majority sense, if we just look at California, that they're a Republican. There are, their identities are not tied necessarily to the political beliefs, beliefs and platform of one particular party. And for me, that's good because there needs to be a change in the way that we think as a nation. And hopefully they'll get this other part right, too, in terms of how they're going to treat people in the workforce and how they're going to treat people in politics. Let me give you these two stories real quick before we go to break. We know about the Me Too movement. We know how young people feel about the Me Too movement. But these individuals eventually who are in power right now, be it politics or the military or entertainment, who have been the lightning rod for the Me Too movement, Young people are kind of figuring out that we've really messed up this country in many ways. A new Harris poll found that nearly one out of four, about 23% of men, grown folks who are the decision makers in many industries, including politics and corporate America and the military, nearly one out of four men thought it was sometimes always acceptable for an employer to expect sex from an employee. We're not talking about a workplace relationship between employees on the same level. We're talking about the power dynamic. One in four men thought it was sometimes or always acceptable for an employer to expect, not allow, but expect sex from an employee. The poll commissioned by the nonprofit humanitarian organization CARE was released, of course, yesterday on International Women's Day. It surveyed 9,400 adults in Australia, Ecuador, Egypt, India, South Africa, the U.S., U.K., and Vietnam. So, yes, it's broader than the U.S., but it's indicative of world views of women. And for all the bluster about the United States being so forward-thinking in its views on women as opposed to maybe the Middle East, we're really not that far ahead. We're really not. 
Sexual harassment at work isn't even illegal in nearly one-third of the world. It's not illegal. So we're ahead in that regard, but we're behind in terms of identifying it and acknowledging it. If you think only this year have we come to terms with its its prevalence and its pervasiveness in nature. I'll give you an example. California lawmaker who was nicknamed, is nicknamed Huggy Bear, and I'm not talking about Starsky and Hutch, has been told to stop hugging people. California state senator has been told to stop hugging people after an investigation concluded that his embraces made multiple female colleagues uncomfortable. Yes, he wasn't necessarily hugging everyone, just female employees. State Senator Bob Hertzberg's frequent hugs, he says, were not intended to be sexual, but more often than not, were unwelcome. He's a Democrat from L.A. He he nicknamed, he was uh, given a nickname such as Hugsburg and Huggy Bear for greeting men and women alike with giant hugs. But I guess there was a favoritism in terms of the women who he was favoring with the hugs and made multiple women uncomfortable. And I have to wonder, I mean, I have friends and colleagues. An occasional hug may be okay if you see them at a non-work event or if you haven't seen them in quite some time. But I think it would be somewhat odd if you're giving out daily hugs or frequent hugs to employees, be it members of the same sex or opposite sex. Okay, now I feel weird because I have been known to hug you in the hallways. Yes, but it's not like whenever we see each other, there's just a hug, and it's not something that you just do with everyone all the time. I mean, That is true. It, frequency, I'm very selective with my yeah, hugs. Yeah, frequency does matter. I mean, <laughs> and from what I see about Huggy Bear here, it's not like he has a, has a degree of rapport with everyone. There's not everyone that you can just go up to and hug, especially if there's a power dynamic. Let's not forget, when you have a superior giving subordinates hugs, well, it's kind of difficult to refuse oftentimes if you think that refusal may play out in a different way, which is negatively, or you may be somehow punished or held against you later on because you're not hugging the boss. If you and a coworker want to hug, I don't think that's a problem, provided both of you are willing participants. But when you have boss to employee, employer to employee, that's a different dynamic. That's a different set of expectations. That's a, that's a level of closeness that not all employees want to have with their employer. I tend to keep bosses at arm's length because it just makes it easier so there are no misunderstandings. And I've been the boss in many situations. And I try to stay away from hugs because I always want to, and I'm almost like Mike Pence on like this. I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. I don't want someone to feel uncomfortable around me. I don't want there to be a presumption that there might be something going on between a female subordinate and me. So it's easier for me to just keep everyone at arm's distance and not necessarily have to worry about that. No pun intended. (laughs) Or intended, however you want to look at it. But it is refreshing, taking this back to the beginning before we go to break, it's refreshing that young people have a different outlook in terms of what's appropriate in the workplace 
in terms of how they approach their politics, the politics of the workplace. They're more independent thinkers. They're not buying into the brands. They're not buying into the status quo. They're willing to consider people on their merits. That's my read from this poll. They're willing to look at, even though it might have been okay in the past in terms of workplace behavior of sexual harassment, that might have been okay, or people turned a blind eye to it in previous years. They're not going to do that. And if anything, it says that for all my complaints about young people in social media, there are some positives which may come out of them. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Yesterday you heard me go all off on a whole bunch of tangents regarding the Trump administration slash the Department of Justice suing the state of California. But I'm not a lawyer, so I thought it would be better today for at least a moment to talk to someone who can give us some legal insight on this case, what it may portend, and what may be the outcome. Joining me right now on the phone is Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law for the Loyola Law School. Professor Levinson, I'm not calling you Jessica, but Professor Levinson, it's good to talk to you again. How are you? It's great to talk to you, and someday I hope to be such a regular that you do call me Jessica. (laughs) But it won't be today, Professor Levinson. Let's jump right in. Give us some background on this case from your legal expertise and what it might mean. Sure. So this case is a matchup between California and the federal government. And what we did in California, as your listeners know, is that we passed a series of laws, three laws, and we basically said to the federal government, look, we want to protect undocumented immigrants, and we don't want to help you out that much when it comes to enforcing immigration laws against undocumented immigrants. And the federal government looked at our laws and said, no, thank you. And there's this thing in the Constitution called a supremacy clause. So Jeff Sessions came to Sacramento and he said, you know what, California, we're suing you because when it comes to federal law versus state law, federal law wins. And Jeff Sessions is true except for some exceptions. So If federal law is in direct conflict with a state law, then the federal law wins based on the supremacy clause. But California's response, and they have a pretty good response here, is there's something called state sovereignty. And that means that all states, regardless of whether they're blue or red, have power to enforce their own laws and to protect the health and safety of those living within the state. So California will say there's a little thing called the Tenth Amendment, and that says that you, federal government, can't commandeer a state to be basically the local arm of your law enforcement, which is a really long way of saying this has become a political fight, but there are actually really interesting and good legal arguments on both sides. Five years ago, I'd say maybe two years ago, I would be more expectant of hearing conservatives and Republicans trying to argue states' rights, the Tenth Amendment. But now it seems like the roles have been reversed, have they not? Well, that's the irony of this, is that conservatives have long talked about the importance of state rights and the importance of the federal government not overreaching and respecting state sovereignty. But that was largely when states were imposing what I would view as more regressive policies, policies that were more harmful to, for instance, civil rights and minority rights. And so 
Now what we have is a state doing the reverse, a state being more protective of civil rights and minority rights, and the federal government is essentially saying, yeah, we're not into states' rights in this particular situation, but thank you so much. Let's drill down a bit. I know that the mayor of Oakland sent out an email last month warning of an impending ICE raid. Can it be argued, or in fact, I made the argument, that's not necessarily being protective of citizens or residents, as it were, but is actually working outside the law. Where does the law stand on that? Yeah, so you could certainly argue that. And, of course, what Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf did is separate from this lawsuit um, of the federal government suing California, but related in terms of it being related to immigration and ICE raids. And so, I mean, Mayor Schaaf definitely decided that it was within her prerogative to warn members of the immigrant community that the ICE raids were about to happen. Now, you know, whether or not it was outside the law, I would say I do not foresee that she will be prosecuted for something like federal obstruction of justice. I think that what she did is permissible, and I think that the real argument is whether or not we think it's wise. When I hear about the federal government suing the state or even vice versa, I wonder if the general lay community understands what is at stake. It's not necessarily for money. What does a winner or loser look like in the resolution of this case? Yeah, I mean, a, a winner, this is not about money. This is about state versus federal power. And so what a winner or loser will look like is um, – you know, if California quote unquote wins, then it will be a win for all states in terms of how far they can go in an area where the federal government has already implemented a policy. Oh, you're talking about and, precedent. This could be case precedent. So, and that's exactly where I wanted to go, which is I think it's really important for us to remember that this opinion is not going to begin. A judge is not going to say when you have a Republican in the White House and when you have Democrats running a state. The opinion is going to start by saying, here are the boundaries of state versus federal power. So, you know, unfortunately, this case has divided us not along legal lines, but along party lines. So if you're a Democrat, you're in favor of what California is doing. And if you're a Republican, you like what the federal government's doing. But we really need to be clear that this case very likely will have precedential value. I think it will be appealed to the Ninth Circuit and then the Supreme Court. And this case will be good law when the reverse is true, when it's when and if it's a Democrat in the White House and a conservative state that is trying to assert itself in a particular area. I know you can't necessarily predict this, Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law at Loyola Law School, but... If you could give us the best guess as far as the timetable on something like this, at least the first ruling before it's kicked up to the other courts. Yeah, I mean, I, you're, you're right that it is very difficult to predict the timing. Um, obviously, the Trump administration has asked for a preliminary injunction, and that means that the court is going to look and see who's likely to succeed. I would expect to see a ruling on that within um, the next couple of at least months, but I don't think that, you know, to your listeners, I don't think we're looking at by next week we're going to get a ruling from the district court, the week after that, the Ninth Circuit. I think it will be slower than that, um, in part because I'm not sure there are exigent, meaning emergency circumstances at issue. So just in time for midterms, you're saying? Um, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> I think that the 
legal decision could coincide with the election um, when the election is. And we see this, you know, you and I have had this conversation a little bit with respect to when Robert Mueller is going to um, come to some conclusions and whether or not it will be timed with respect to the election. And we can have the same discussion with respect to Supreme Court decisions this term and even now this um, sanctuary state case. It's all politics you're saying. Great. Wonderful. No, actually, I'm saying I'm so depressed that it's all politics because this is a legal issue. And it's kind of like the filibuster, where if you're in the minority, you love the power that the filibuster gives you. And then all of a sudden, the parties flip and the majority hates the filibuster because it gives the minority power so the minority party so much power. And that's what we need to be careful about when we're really rooting for, if we're Democrats, an opinion that gives states more latitude, or if we're Republicans and we're really rooting for more federal power, because this case is actually kind of the mirror image of a case in which um, the Obama administration sued Arizona yes. for actually going, to, quote unquote, too far with respect to being um, more aggressive of implementing immigration laws. And so... You know, again, I would just say I know that we will not do this. I know that it's basically pointless for me to utter this sentence, but I really hope we look at the legal issues and not the politics. Amen to that. She is Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law, Loyola Law School. Professor Levinson, I always enjoy our conversations on and off the air, and I so appreciate your expertise to be able to share this in a digestible way for people to understand. Let's do it again sometime soon. I would love that. Thank you. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640, more stimulating talks. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. If you're not familiar with me, I host the Mo Kelly Show here on KFI, Saturdays and Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Mo Kelly, M-R-M-O-K-E-L-L-Y. You can check out my personal website, MrMoKelly.com, spelled the same. All right, I'm going to need your help on this one, Blake and Amy King. We're going to have to do an abridged version of this, but I found a list of the drunkest states in the nation. And since it's Friday and people are going to get lit tonight, who do you think is in the top 10 of the drunkest states in America, since we don't have time for all 50. Mm, Wisconsin. We just throwing them out, yeah? Yeah. Wisconsin. They're number two. Ooh. Very good. I'm going to throw in, uh, I guess we'll stay regional Minnesota. Minnesota is number six. Okay. Massachusetts. state party states. No. Massachusetts is not in the top 10. I was just hoping on Boston. But it's number 13. I was just hoping Boston would fuel that one. Boston. All right, I'm going to think of somewhere where I probably wouldn't want to live. Uh, oh, damn, that's so messed up. <laughs> North Dakota. Number one. Wow. <laughs> well, you stole my thunder there. Sorry. <laughs> Michigan. Well, Michigan is on the list. It is number 10. And the way they put this list together, it had to do with uh, adults drinking excessively alcohol-related driving deaths, adults in fair or poor health, and drunkest metro area within the state. Alaska up there? 
Alaska's number three. There we go. Cold weather usually means people will drink or well, just being isolated. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't go, you know, here, you can go out hiking. There, you're stuck inside for nine months of the year. But to push back against that, number eight is Hawaii. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Is that is that based on residents or is it based on consumption? Because like in Hawaii, everybody's vacationing, so they're drinking Mai Tais. Some 20.5% of the adult population in Hawaii drinks to excess, hmm. well above the comparable national share of 18%. So I guess they're looking at it as people who are actually residents. And drinking excessively uh, is termed as men having more than 15 drinks in a week. And women, more than seven drinks in a week. How come we only get seven? I guess you all can't hold your liquor. That, I guess that's it. Okay. I mean, I, yes, I know the science. You weigh less than us. And so alcohol is going to disproportionately affect women more so than men as far as body, a body mass index and average weight, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Well, for gender equality, I just don't think that's fair. Well, would you like to have 15 drinks with, with your male counterparts? <laughs> no, because I'd be on my lips. That's a no? Are you sure? Are you sure, Amy King? Is there a side of you I just don't know? Yes. Okay. Well, being from Oregon, what was Oregon yeah, like? Yeah, what's Oregon? I have to find it, but it's not in the top 20. Oh, excuse me. Yes, it is. Number 16. So just barely. What's just California? 22. Huh. See? Because we have things we can do here. Yeah, and there's a lot of state and there are a lot of people. I mean, you That's can- true. San Francisco is not like L.A. San Diego is not like San Francisco. I mean, we don't have, I would say, a unified state ethos or environment or experience on any level. But we're 22. I mean, I guess that's one thing good about California. I know. I was going to say, you know what? Our quality of life sucks, but we don't drink too much. Yeah. You know, and I, and I saw that report, and I'm okay with living in California. I'm born and raised here. I hate the traffic. But I would not trade California for any other state. And I've been to maybe 32, I think, of the 50. Uh, I'm pretty good with California. Now, as I get older, I become less of a city guy and more of a rural guy or a suburban guy because, you know, I want less drama as opposed to more drama. But I like the city feel of L.A. And if they could ever get the traffic straight, I'd be all good with California. Well, good luck on that since there's no money going to the roads. Well, and even if they did have money going to the roads, they'd probably misapply it, you know, misappropriate it. You mean like gas tax money that's supposed to be going to the roads? That too. That too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We we won't get into that right now. Not today. Not Not today. today. Not today. Oh, but there is something very important that I want to give to you today. I have a gift to you. I come bearing gifts. Let's just say hypothetically you wanted to go to the iHeartRadio Music Awards. Well, here's a chance for you to win a pair of tickets to the awards themselves. It's the award show you can control. Our 20th 2018 iHeartRadio Music Awards is Sunday, March 11th at the Forum here in L.A. with performances from Bon Jovi, Ed Sheeran, Maroon 5, Charlie Puth, Cardi B, an Innovator Award honoree Chance the Rapper, is hosted by DJ Khaled and Haley Baldwin, the only award show in the world that celebrates your love of music. If you would like to go, you and a guest, you know what? We have tickets for you now. Caller 6, 
Give us a call at 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. If you and a guest would like to go to the iHeartRadio Music Awards this Sunday at the Forum in Los Angeles, give us a call, 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And you know what time it is now. It's time to find out what's trending. Time for What's Happening. You probably heard Amy King talk about Farmer Bro, Martin Screlly, sentenced to seven years in prison. And it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I'm not so sure I believe in karma, but I'm pretty close to believing it. I believe that if you put good things out there, good things will come back to you. If you treat people well, then people are more inclined to treat you well. I don't know if that's karma, but that's how the universe works as far as I'm concerned. And if you try to jack up the prices of of necessary medicine, some 5,000% just to line your park, your pockets, then you deserve to get whatever comes back to you in return. So Farmer Bro is in jail seven years. Oh, and, and speaking of jail, Nick Viverka handed me the story, which is laugh out loud funny. Laugh out loud funny. A man was arrested this week after authorities say he tried to get into, tried to get into an L.A. County jail facility with a fake FBI ID and several weapons. You didn't get that. A guy was trying to sneak into a jail with a fake FBI badge and several weapons. You think like he tried to do the thing where he comes in and flashes his badge and FBI and, you know. Evidently, he flashed it a little too too long or a little too fast. Yeah. Yeah. And then deputies at the at the jail stopped him because they wanted to more closely examine his supposed credentials. This fool turned around and ran. Because that's what FBI agents would do. (laughs) But then he ran across the street towards the L.A. County Men's Central Jail facility. He left one jail in which he was trying to get into and ran towards the other one. He got in jail, just not in the way that he intended. And he's going to stay for a while. A, A very long while. And what would possess someone... And if you've ever been to a jail, not been to jail, but been to a jail, be you a civilian or not, they're always going to check and run your ID. Obviously, he was afraid of that happening. But what would possess someone to try to sneak weapons into a jail and a fake FBI ID? He would have done something. He would have done better probably with something which was less um, would call less attention to him. Yeah, he went a little too far. I mean, why did he have to go FBI? Why couldn't he be, and this is just <laughs> hypothetically, why couldn't he be like, I don't know, uh, a, a cop from out of state or something like that? Right. I think he overthought this one. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. He put Well, too except much- he has then, if he's federal, then he could go, like, why would a, a cop from Minnesota be in the California prison? 
No, it could be someone just of uh, uh, someone from the state, though. Oh. Just a different jurisdiction. Yeah. You know, from I don't know Reading. <laughs> you know, Lodi, <laughs> somewhere real far up north. But why am I trying to make sense out of nonsense? Here we go. Uh, Blake, this applies to you. This is what's trending. One third of millennials brush their teeth just once a day. <gasps> oh, you my dentist would be horrified. Well, I, I, I know a lot of Gen Xers and Gen Yers only brush their teeth once a day. How but often I, do you brush your teeth? Two to three times. Usually when I get home from work, that will be the second time. Because you feel so dirty when you get home from work? Yeah, and <laughs> definitely before I go to bed. And do you floss? Yes. Really? Yeah. Religiously? I just, yeah, I just had to. I just had to over the years because I've always had a problem. Here's the strange thing, and I'm giving way too much of my business. I've never had a cavity in my life. But you have tartar. But I have to work very hard with my gums. Mm-hmm. Do you and, know that that's very common? Really? Because I have a ton of cavities, but I don't have tartar. Isn't this interesting? I actually just talked to my dentist about this. Does it have to do with production of saliva? Or they something? don't really know why. It's just that that tends to be. I've never had a cavity. Oh, I, you can have some of mine. They're awful. <sighs> and and I've never had a, an affinity for sweets. So it's not oh. like I don't drink sodas. I drink mostly water. But that's something I'm very, I have to work very hard at. Maintaining. Well, you do a great job. Well, thank you very much, my dear. Look at those pearly whites. No, no, no. There's pearly as they used to be. I'm getting old. Anyhow, Blake, Millennial, back to you. Yeah. <laughs> Despite that sidebar digression. Yeah. As the resident Millennial, do you think that's accurate in the sense of not just you, but your peer group as far as how often people brush their teeth? It doesn't surprise me, I guess, because um, I feel like I've had a I, – I think the reason would be – uh, millennials at this point, the only thing I can come up with, millennials at this point, it's a lot of staying up late, doing things up until the last minute, and you hear so much, oh, dude, and then I just passed out. Right. So I think it's, uh, they probably brush their teeth in the morning when they're getting ready to go out there and, and hit the work day or hit school or whatever it is, and then at the end of the day, because they worked or partied or did whatever they did up until bed, it's just, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going to bed. So I'm guessing that would be why. I don't think it's a, they don't think it's necessary. It's just they've they've uh, run out of minutes in the day as far as they'd say. And that, I think that goes back to my original point. I don't think this is unusual. I think this is indicative of an age group. Yeah. And as we get older, be it Gen X, Gen Y, millennial, then we tend to take more care of our teeth. Because when I was a kid, I was not focusing on flossing. Let's be real. Well, and also what what is my age group or, you know, from high school – I guess millennials aren't high schoolers anymore, but college to in their 20s, nothing can stop you, right? Right. No, nothing, nothing's going to go wrong. Nothing with you. hurts you. There's yeah. no problems in life. So the last thing you're thinking about is worrying about a cavity. That's not, that's, yeah. that's really not an issue. So I got news for you. Stuff is going to start hurting very soon. Stuff already hurts. What are you, 25? 26, yeah. 26, yeah. By the time you hit about 32, I would think, you start realizing that you're not immortal. It's about right around that time. Especially if you were an athlete or did something where you accumulated mileage on your body along the way. My, I, I accumulated mileage by not stretching, so I started having. You feel back, that? I started yes. having back issues at about fifteen. Yes, I think is when my back or my my elbow went out at fifteen, and then my back was like soon after that. Elbow is because of baseball. So highly recommend stretching. Yeah, I need. Highly I still recommend. need to work on that more. And That's I'm aware something of it. which has really helped me as I 
almost leave my 40s now. Stretching has kept me limber, has kept me functioning as far as, you know, I can still do all the things that I did in my 20s and 30s. Maybe not as fast, maybe not as well, but I'm not physically limited in that way. The worst things about me are my eyes. Yeah, I would say my eyes. That's that's one thing I was not, I was not blessed with good eyes at all. I've had nothing but problems with my eyes my whole life. You know, I'm blind. I have trouble with uh, binocular vision. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. What's binocular vision? When both of my eyes looking and focusing on the same object at the same time. Oh. Where, where so you I'll get have, like two pictures? No. Well, no. My vision will blur because my left eye will stray. Oh, okay. It won't focus in on the same thing. And it just gets increasingly difficult to move both eyes together at the same time. Like I cannot move both of my eyes all the way to the upper right corner. It's not going to happen. And I, you know, everybody's driving around in their cars. Don't do that. Don't do that. Please, (laughs) please don't do that. So it makes it very difficult doing certain tasks. I mean, just even driving, looking over my shoulder and, you know, checking for traffic and then making that lane change. It's just those, it's just a product of, of getting older, unfortunately. Things don't work as well. But that's just something I wasn't blessed with, you know. I had the great uh, blessing of no cavities, but as far as eyes and, and other stuff, not so much. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Oh, yeah. I am 640. More stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And just in case, if you're wondering, we are following the events at the Yountville Veterans Home. If you don't know, we have reports. Amy King has talked about it. Reports of an active shooter. This Veterans Home is on lockdown, and there have been reports of gunfire. From what we know, an active uh, a shooter came in about... 10.30 a.m., the reports came in at the Veterans Home of California, Yountville, which is in the Napa area. It's about 40 miles north of San Francisco. We don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Amy King, we don't know if there are any injuries or There the are status. no reporters' injuries at this time, but they, like you said, they, they have reported shots fired. And um, Alex Stone was saying that they were there were shots fired at some deputies who they've set up a perimeter up there. There's SWAT teams. Um, they've kind of cordoned off the whole area. Well, at least at this point, we don't know of anyone being hurt. And, and obviously, as information will come in, we will give that to you immediately, either myself or Amy King, as it's made available. Yeah, we, we, we should mention, uh, and I don't I don't know, maybe you just mentioned it, but up to three people are being held hostage. No, I did not mention it. Okay. Up to three people. That, that's what police are saying. So, And the guy uh, walked in. With an automatic weapon, apparently, has body armor on. Oh, goodness. So um, we will keep you up to date as more information comes in. But Yeah. And and there's a lot of veterans there. About 1,000 veterans live there. It's the biggest uh, U.S. vets home in the country. It's an old, one of the oldest, if I'm not mistaken, as well. It's, yeah, it dates back to like the 1800s, I think. Unfortunately, this is the world in which we live now. But we will give you the information as it comes in, um, and we'll just make sure that you're Kept in the loop as far as what is going on. Just to recount, we have an active shooter situation at the Yountville Veterans Home of, uh, it's called the Veterans Home of California. At least three hostages. There have been reports of shot, shots fired. 
but there are no immediately reports of injuries. And as Amy King said, uh, there is uh, a shooter with body armor, and obviously there was some planning and intent that we can infer from all of this. Some 850 people lived at the veterans' home. It's a rather large facility from what I read, and it's more than 133 years old. Yeah, and the, there are vets from World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, Desert Storm, and Operation Enduring Freedom. So it really, there's a, there's a ton of people there. And I don't want to speculate too much, but no. as we talk about, of course, mental health and care of our veterans, um, I have a feeling this is going to be, once again, another part of the discussion after we find out more about who the shooter is and the person's motives and why this event is in, unfolding. As we know more, we be, will be sure to let you know more. But as we move on in the program and it's unfortunate that we have to deal with stuff like that. And I, I was going to do another story about Florida and daylight savings. And it's kind of hard to do it a hard turn after that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the question has been going on for quite some time. If you didn't know daylight savings um, will begin here in California on Sunday morning, Saturday night, turning Sunday morning. And there's an ongoing discussion as far as whether we should continue it. I personally love daylight savings time. I like it too. I don't like going home from work if I'm getting off at 5 o'clock or so and it being dark. It almost makes it feel like my day is over and it changes my mood and also traffic abruptly because when the sun goes down, more people get on the road because they feel as I do the day is over. And if there's more sunlight out, then it allows me to navigate through the city easier. I feel like I have more of a day like leaving work in the summer is very different from leaving work in the winter. I wouldn't mind if we stayed on daylight savings the whole time. The whole idea of daylight savings is rather antiquated at this point. I think it's more for, I think it was like for farmers or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. So you could continue with the crops later. Yeah. But now it's, it's just a thing where, hey, don't forget to set your clocks. Like, why? Why, why don't we just go ahead and stay there the whole time? In the state of Florida is discussing this right now, and they're voting to spring forward and just leave and Eastern Time Zone altogether. Just stay there. Arizona doesn't switch. And what about Tennessee? No, they switch. I thought. Oh, well. I didn't or was, or is it in Indiana? I thought there was another Tennessee, state. Tennessee, I think, does. Indiana gets wonky. Yes, it is Indiana. Yeah. Indiana. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it just seems so strange why... Not even the whole country even observes it. I'll be honest. I have a hard time. When when are we on it and when are we off of it? Well, we go on it this set, well, this Sunday morning at 2 a.m. And then it used to be earlier and later. They yes. shrunk it. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's the springing forward mm-hmm. that puts you on it and the falling back takes you off of it? Yeah, Correct. you go back to standard time. Oh, and that okay. happens. It used to be around. Like April something. It used to be in April and it's usually somewhere around Halloween, or it used to be. Now it seems like they've pushed it back. Let's see. Yeah, I'm the guy who really does not like uh, the winter solstice. I, I, those that, that day, when we get on the other side of December 21st and we have longer days, as they say, my mood gets progressively better every single week because the day gets longer. And so when daylight savings does come back around this Sunday, such o'clocks, you're going to lose an hour. Yeah, it's the second Sunday in March that we go to daylight saving time, and then we go back to standard time the first Sunday in November. 
Okay, so we got about four months of standard time. What's the point? I don't know. What is the point? <laughs> it's so your Christmas trees can be illuminated longer. Okay. Drive up them power bills. That's what it's for. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I guess. That's as good like an answer it. as any. And I think it's funny. Not hot. Well, yeah, it is kind of funny. Everybody's like, oh, I get so stressed out. I might have a heart attack because you had to get up earlier. I just think it's silly. Eventually, we'll have some sort of unifying um, idea of whether we as a country are going to be on standard time or daylight savings. Are we going to join Arizona and mountain time? I mean, I don't get it. I think we have more important things to worry about. Oh, we do. We do. In fact, when I'm going to get up on Sunday morning after we have daylight savings time. And the beauty of it is with all this technology, you don't even have to set your clocks forward again because you're, all your technology does it for you. Well, I can go one better. Hey, Google. Oh, let me turn up my phone. Hey, Google. Set an alarm for tomorrow, uh, Sunday at 8 a.m. Actually, if you just asked about an alarm on Sunday at 8 a.m., I don't see any. Hey, Google, <laughs> set an alarm for me Sunday at 8 a.m. Stop talking back. Sorry, I can't set alarms on your phone more than 24 hours before they're supposed to go off. You can kiss my ass, Google. <laughs> Andrew, it's awesome. <laughs> We're gonna oh oh you went there you went there you're so lucky that we have Swamp Watch coming up I got something special for you all you iPhone fanboys this is the Gary and Shannon show I'm Mo Kelly for Gary and Shannon KFI AM six forty more stimulating talk drain the swamp we're gonna drain the swamp of Washington we're gonna have fun doing it we're all doing it together. Okay, if I am 640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And yes, I received your 459 tweets, 327 Facebook messages, and four text messages. It's daylight saving time. Yes, I received it. But but might I just argue real quick? It's a small quibble. My saving is cumulative in nature. I save every day, so it's a totality of savings. Damn it. Go ahead and send your tweets. Go ahead and send your texts. Go ahead and send your Facebook messages. Joining me on the phone right now is Louis Martinez, ABC News reporter. He has the latest for us in regard to the president and Kim Jong-un and their proposed meeting. Louis, good to talk to you. What's going on in the world today? Well, McKelly, it's uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, last <laughs> night we had, we had the news that the president was going to meet with uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong Un by May. Um, everybody seemed to be on board with that, and now maybe a little, just a little step back. Um, so Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, uh, saying that um, the president is not going to have a meeting without seeing quote concrete steps and concrete actions taking place by North Korea. So what does that mean? 
Um, she said to reporters at the White House, it just simply means that a time and place hasn't been set yet. But I think that it's a little bit more couching um, than uh, what we were led to believe last night uh, when the White House, after uh, that news came out, issued its own statement uh, saying that the president had agreed to meet uh, with Kim at a place and time to be determined. But um, either way, I mean, the progress had been made in terms of President Trump agreeing to meet with Kim Jong-un. Now uh, let's just see where things actually go. What concerned me, and I said this earlier in the program, Louis, which you might not have heard, I was concerned as far as the optics in the sense of who was controlling the messaging. If I have this right, this message did not come originally. The acknowledgement of this proposed meeting did not come from the United States, but from South Korea. And since it did not come from the United States, that's part of the reason why now the United States has to kind of walk back the specifics of the meeting, what it's going to be about, and what are any, if any, preconditions what might this then say for going forward as far as controlling the message? Well, that's it, a great point because um, that was actually a topic of discussion internally here among some of my colleagues last night. Well, why are we seeing the South Korean uh, National Security Advisor in front of the White House's West Wing uh, making this announcement? And uh, what some of us came up with was that, you know, this was a meeting uh, that emerged from this weekend's meeting between uh, the same person who made the uh, announcement last night and Kim Jong-un over the weekend. That led to the positive vibes over the week about the possibility of talks. They came to the White House. They briefed the national security team. Then they briefed President Trump. He made the agreement. Uh, he decided, yes, I will meet with Kim. Um, but then it's it's closure because this is a this is a South Korean-led initiative, right? This is between South Korea and North Korea, ultimately. Um, and the United States uh, is just a key ally of South Korea. So uh, on the optics level, I mean, it was, uh, it was raised some questions, but I think it makes sense that South Korea was actually making the announcement. But it also, I think, like you say, opens a little, leaves a little wiggle room here, right? Because uh, the White House can kind of clarify what it wanted to say about the president's agreement uh, later on, as, as it appears to be the case right now. They're clarifying the White House, but they haven't been exactly specific. And I'm clear what North Korea gets out of this in terms of the public announcement of a proposed meeting. I'm clear what South Korea gets out of this, but I'm not so clear what the U.S. gets out of this announcement. Well, I think what the United States wants to see is a nuclear-free North Korea. Now, whether that's reality or not in the future, I mean, that remains to be seen, because we have already known that once you open that Pandora's box of a nuclear weapons system, uh, you're not going to give it back, right. um, especially as far along as North Korea is with it right now. Um, so how do you – okay, so you engage in talks, and then what happens after that? Do you really – do we really expect North Korea to do that? And, you know, we've seen skepticism on the part of many U.S. officials this week when there was talk of talks, um, but then uh, because they said that North Korea really can't be trusted. Um, and uh, we know that in the past they've engaged in, uh, in negotiations only to step back and then uh, break whatever agreements they've had. So it's unclear where things are going to go. Um, but, I mean, there's another thing, too, uh, the specificity of the word talks. Uh, when you and I mentioned talks, we're, th we're thinking, oh, you sit across from a table and you negotiate. Well, that's, I think, some of the perception of last night was that that's maybe what Trump wouldn't be doing, um, but the uh, State Department and the White House saying today that, well, what President Trump will do is just meet face-to-face -face with um, Kim Jong-un, and then after is kind of setting the tone for the possibility of future talks where real negotiations can take place, and then ultimately that's where we'll see whether North Korea is going to make commitments or not. Within the news community, is there any sense, because of this meeting, 
that North Korea has a desire to be a member of the world community, as in like maybe be part of the U.N. and have normalized diplomatic relations with other nations? Or is this about only legitimizing the UN regime and nothing more? It's both, actually. We know for a fact that uh, North Korea wants to be considered a part of the international community. They are members of the United Nations, um, but they want to be seen as equal partners on on the world stage. Um, And one of the things that's driven North Korea's uh, nuclear and missile um, weapons program has been that, because they want international respect, that they want to be seen as unequal to the United States. They want to be able to threaten the United States and, and in a way, kind of uh, bring the United States to, to talks at their own level. Now, that's what the, they had been wanting to do. Um, what we see with this new request is a, is a turnabout, in a way, because Kim Jong-un, he's been feisty. He's got that crazy rhetoric. Um, but then he met his peer here with President Trump last week, last year, uh, who raised uh, it up even further, the rhetoric, uh, with his fire and fury comments. And it kind of took uh, things to an edge. But when you talk to officials, they, talk, they point to the sanctions that have been enforced um, since last year, that the international community has gotten behind those sanctions, and that that is what may be driving North Korea uh, to change its tune. Um, but in a way, it's interesting because by forcing them uh, to the table, at the same time, you're, you're kind of giving them parity by agreeing to meet. So it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off, right? But it seems that Kim Jong-un gets what he wants, uh, which is being uh, seen on the world stage um, as a peer of the United States. I agree with all that. And my last question is, since we're talking about the optics and being perceived and seen on the same level, does it matter ultimately, ultimately, that North Korea asked and the United States accepted or should have been in the other direction where the United States gets to dictate to North Korea if and when they meet at all? Well, that might be what we're seeing right now, because what the United States has said as a precondition for talks was um, give us so show us an indication that you really uh, want to be uh, following through with commitments that you make. Show us that you're going to step back from uh, continuing with your weapons programs. One of the things that was communicated to President Trump last night was that North Korea says it's not going to pursue any more uh, nuclear tests uh, and not going to pursue any more missile tests. Uh, if that's the case, it sounds like maybe, um, as uh, Sanders said earlier today, uh, the intelligence community might be able to verify if that's actually the case. You know, they, they're able to spot those missile movements, and if they don't see anything, then maybe that is uh, considered a concrete action. But I think what you said is, ex- is uh, excellent. I mean, who actually does the inviting and who accepts, uh, I think, plays great significance. And I think that's one of the things that uh, emerged from last night was that this was Kim Jong-un making the offer himself. Um, and then you have President Trump uh, deciding that, okay, maybe even without those preconditions, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk, and let's just see where things go. He is Louis Martinez, ABC News correspondent. Louis, thank you so much for all that you do, and hopefully we get to talk about this again. You got it, Mo Kelly. Thanks so much. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon, KFI AM640, and also we'll have more opportunities for you to win tickets to the iHeartRadio Music Awards in the next hour, so stick with us. Six forty more. Steve, they talk. This is the Gary and Shannon show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Very quickly before we go to the top of the hour, let's check in with Alex Stone of ABC News. He's standing by with the latest on the hostage situation at the Veterans Home in Yountville, California, which is in the Napa area. 
Alex, how are you, and what can you tell us at this point? Hey, Mo, what we don't know right now, negotiators are trying to get the gunmen to give up. They want them to come out peacefully. There are SWAT teams that have now arrived from really all over the Bay Area. Sonoma County just arrived on scene. They're now working it. They've got it as a, a big complex. All of the buildings in the Veterans Home of California in Yachtville, they've got the buildings surrounded with both the local and federal SWAT teams. They want this guy to come out. They want him to come out alive. They want the hostages, we understand there are two, to uh, come out alive as well <clears throat> excuse me but uh, at this point it's fairly static and this started at 10:20 this morning so we're about two and a half hours into it now call of a man with an automatic weapon dressed in black body armor then it took off from there we know 15 to 30 shots were fired at a deputy who responded shots have not been fired in a while but now they're trying to, to talk them into, into coming out do you know if there is a direct line of communication which has been established there has been, but we also understand at times that has gone down, that, that he will not answer his phone. Uh, and so it has been on again, off again. The negotiators have been able to, to have contact with him. There are snipers in place right now. Uh, that, that would be a last resort if they have to take him out. Uh, but they, uh, they are around the building as well. And, and right now it is this waiting game to, to see which way is it going to go. Will he give up? Will he negotiate and finally come out the door? Uh, or will they have to take more drastic action? In terms of the, the 15 to 30 shots which were fired at the deputy, was the deputy harmed? And do we know if the hostages have been harmed at this point? Yeah, incredibly at this point, there's no indication that anybody has been hit, that anybody has been injured. Uh, there are ambulances on standby, medic teams that are ready to go in with the SWAT teams as well. There's a command post set up right outside one of these buildings. It is a large complex. The buildings look like hospital buildings. This is essentially a hospital where they're doing this. Uh, housing veterans all the way back to World War II. The area that they're in right now is where younger veterans are housed and where younger veterans get the treatment. Some areas of the complex are just on lockdown. Others are evacuated. Uh, but no, nobody has been injured that we know of right now. Has it been communicated to law enforcement the identity of the shooter? They know who this guy is. Uh, we have a name as well that we're not going to pass along. There are some who say that he was getting treatment uh, in the last couple of weeks at this center. Uh, that he does know the area, that he knows the people there, that this may have been somebody who served not that long ago and suffering from PTSD. But all of that is just what, what people who say that they, they know the guy, say they know the area are saying, that's not coming out officially right now. Do you know at this point, I know this is all speculation in terms of, you said that the communication has been up and down as far as whether he's been answering. Is there any sense of whether there is calm or tension in terms of the hostage situation? It is relatively calm on scene. All indications that, uh, that we are getting from police and, and the scenes that we're seeing that uh, there's not a lot of fast movement. Uh, the, the latest SWAT team, as I mentioned, Sonoma County just arrived, and they came in very calmly. There's not a lot of sirens. It, it's been somewhat static for about the last two hours as they try to negotiate with them. No, there's not a real hurried rush running around any longer. The police radios have been quiet for about the last five or ten minutes. Not a lot of reporting coming in. That Now they're at this stage where they want to talk them into coming out. But the frantic part of it now seems like, at least for the moment, uh, has ended. That doesn't mean that, that it won't uh, kick back up again in the next couple of minutes, next couple of hours. But right now, it is relatively calm on scene. Alex Stone, ABC News, thank you so much for your contributions. We're sure we'll be checking in with you over the coming hours. You got it. Thanks, Mel. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Just to recapitulate uh, real quick, just to recount what was said 
we know that some 15 to 30 shots were fired at a deputy who was responding on scene to this active shooter situation at the Yountville Veterans Home. There are no reports of injuries at this point, thank goodness. And also, as was indicated in the conversation by with Alex Stone, they know the identity of the shooter. They are not publicly releasing it, which means they probably know something with respect to the reasons behind it or maybe some of the associations why this person is doing what he's doing and what other people it may impact or entail. As we have more information, we will pass it on to you. I'm quite sure either Amy King or Deborah Mark later in the day will make sure we get it straight to you. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon, KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Gary and Shannon Show, Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And what is this I read? Some national day of unplugging. No phone, no TV, no electronic devices for 24 hours. No lights, no motor cars. As primitive as can be. They want us to go like Gilligan's Stone Age. Yeah. Jane Wells is standing by, CNBC special correspondent and frequent KFI contributor. Jane Wells, you have to explain this to me on one of your wait, devices. Wait a minute. Amy just said I'm not allowed to even drive the car or turn on the light. Amy, she's invoking your name. Yeah, because, you know, it's like Gilligan's Island Day. No, 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 no. Okay. All right. We got we to gotta draw the line right. Okay. So this is National Unplugging Day, and my understanding of it and what I am preparing, and it's already hard enough to do, is no phones, no social media, no anything starting at sundown tonight till sundown tomorrow. So it's sort of a test-free Sabbath, if, if you will. In fact, I'm in a Starbucks right now where I can still for a few more hours be on my phone, use their Wi-Fi, surf the net, Instagram, tweet. And then the, comp- the organization behind it has handed out to the 60,000 people who have pledged to do this little cell phone sleeping bags. They're these little burlap bags that you're supposed to put your cell phones in as you say goodnight to them for 24 hours. Because, well, I don't have to tell you, we are a nation of addicts. I'm not talking opioids. I'm talking technology. There's nothing wrong with being an addict, okay? Stop (laughs) demonizing those who are addicted. You need to have more compassion and sympathy. You need to recognize a problem. That's the first step towards solving it, Mo. I will be the first to admit, hello, my name is Morris William O'Kelly, and I am <laughs> an, a device addict. Yes, I need my smartphone. Now, there are some justifications which are real and some which are imagined. Real, I have aging parents, so I do have my smartphone on me, and all the times the ringer is on for those types of issues. But there are other times where I realize, man, I need to put the phone down. I don't know if I could, in my business, put down all my devices for 24 hours because I have to maintain a social media presence in my job. I have to stay abreast of the news, working in breaking news uh, station like KFI. How am I supposed to get around it when I have a show tomorrow? Well, maybe you need to pick another day because you're, you are correct with you having a show tomorrow, but that doesn't mean you can't do it some other day when you don't have a show. I mean, ah. we can all come up with excuses. It becomes a point where you're not just checking headlines maybe once an hour, but there's some research out there that says the average American touches their phone during their waking hours as much as three times a minute. I find that a little high, but I do find 
in any situation, because we're so distracted and we have such short attention spans, even if you hear the siren going by here, I'm in Ventura Boulevard, I like sort of naturally reach for my phone. And when I don't have it with me, I still reach. They call this thing phantom vibration, that you actually think you feel a text coming in even when you don't have your phone on you. And that's a problem. How do we then put this genie back in the bottle? And yes, we can put our devices down for a day. Yes, we can unplug from social media for a week or or however, but then we go right back into it. It's almost like quitting smoking for a yeah. day. How, how yeah. is that supposed to wean you off it? It's supposed to be a baby step. And for people who don't want to do the whole day, just do it for four hours. Start out small. Start to say so that people who expect you to respond every time, this is my problem. They always think I always reply within 30 seconds. So when I don't reply within 30 seconds, they send out the police to make sure I'm still alive, you know. Start to make change everybody's expectations and your own. Baby steps, baby steps. There's research that says the more you're on social media, the worse your sleep is, the higher uh, chance of uh, depression. And the people behind this organization, the National Day of Unplugging, say if you are going to unplug tomorrow, plan ahead. If you're going to go somewhere and you're going to use GPS, print out the map. Tell people, hey, I'll be at the Starbucks at 1 p.m., I agree with you. There are times in which I'm self-aware about my mood. And if I feel that I'm going into a negative place, I stay away from social media. It's almost like drunk texting. It's not a good idea. If, <laughs> if your mood is, is wavering, stay away from Twitter. Oh, my goodness. You, well, you will not feel yeah. good about yourself. No, it's, you know the Internet is filled with people who are angry and mean. But my problem is it's just like, oh, you know, before I go to bed, let me just check everything one more time. And 45 minutes later, I'm down some, you know, Internet, internet rabbit hole. And that's 45 minutes of sleep I could have gotten. Now, see, when I use my device late at night, it puts me to sleep. That's interesting. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. I, I slowly wind down, and it's on – I guess it's my version of watching TV because I don't watch a lot of TV. But something I do watch, Jane Wells, as do you, movies. Oh, yeah. What's the last oh, yeah. movie you've seen? Oh, wow. Uh, well, Star Wars, I guess. I'm thinking Star Wars is the last one I've seen. I have not gone to. I, I got a bunch of SAG DVDs. So right. I saw Shape of Water and Three Billboards and all those in the comfort of my home. Which, as you know, Mo, is how I prefer to go to the movies. You and me both. I haven't, I haven't gone out yet into an actual theater in 2018, and um, it takes a lot for me to do that. Is there anything on your must-see list in the near future? Um, uh, <laughs> the, oh, the next Star Wars, you know, the, the Han Solo thing. Maybe? Oh, you are going to Yes, see, I'm all in for solo a star wars story i you and i have talked about the last jedi which left a horrible taste in my mouth but yeah. i am all in for that solo movie pun I can't intended quit that jones i can't quit that you yeah. know uh everything else i'll wait till i get it on uh, amazon netflix or from the sad sad but no not that not that and i do find that increasingly i'm watching stuff less on my tv screen and more on my ipad and so that is one of those changes too it's a strange evolution but of course for the kids these days uh they go to the phone first they're watching an entire movie on a phone on a phone mode. I, i've done that too that makes perfect sense to me that's yeah oh, not me yet
Yeah. But not tonight. Not tonight. No TV, no phone. I'm going to have to look at my husband and speak to him. Heaven forbid. <laughs> we won't text across the table. Jane Wells, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Talk to you soon. That's okay. Jane Wells, CNB special, CNBC special correspondent and frequent KFI contributor and movie lover like I am. So that means it's time for Mo on the Movies. Welcome to Mo on the Movies. Oh, Red. Don't be ridiculous, darling. It's Mo on the Movies. Kiss me. Not a chance. It's almost like I want Shannon Farron to go ahead and comment about the music in the background. I'm almost waiting for her to do that. Running through the tulips. But Gary and Shannon aren't here, so I have to do my own segment. How odd is that? It's kind of weird. So who's going to introduce me? I think John Frost just did, didn't he? I guess. But usually say <laughs> Gary will say, Mo's here, welcome. What do you see? What do you like? I guess you're not going to do that, huh? You just did it. Oh, okay. You did it in a different voice. I've Just swap characters. Just bounce back and forth. We got multiple mics. You can run mic to mic if you want. That's too much damn work. <laughs> and it wouldn't be appreciated. But I do have two movies that I definitely want to talk about. First, there's Death Wish. And it's starring Bruce Willis and also is co-starring uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. And depending on how old you are, and this actually does come back to you, Blake, you may not be old enough to remember the original Death Wish with uh, Charles Bronson. No, and I, I became aware of that when I saw the uh, trailer for it or a commercial for it, and I was like, oh, did they just steal this from Taken? And someone was like, nope, Taken stole it from Death Wish. And I was like, oh, well, th- there you go. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it, <laughs> except that Death Wish was much more violent for its time. Right. I just, all I heard was the, she's like, oh, someone's here. And I'm like, what? I'm pretty sure we've been over this of someone's here. And then the dad has to go save or, you know, strong man comes and saves. And it, uh, yeah. And there's also the timing when the original Death Wish came out, crime was at an all time high in America especially in the big cities. That movie resonated with viewers in a way which was more specific to that time. Now we have movies where they seem to be more political in nature, and that's what resonates with people. I don't know if people are going to perceive this death wish with Bruce Willis in the same way they perceive the original one, but I am very curious, and I had a conversation with Vincent D'Onofrio when he came on my program, The Mo Kelly Show, many months ago, he was talking about this movie and and how it's going to be a re-envisioned, a reimagination of that storyline in today's world. And there's some movies you can't update. I'm curious to see how they update this particular Death Wish. And the original Death Wish, Amy King, did you ever see the original? I did not. Very violent for its time. It, it was. I was oh. way too young to see a, a violent movie like that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, I guess in my house it's like, yeah, go ahead. See it. I didn't see it in the movie house. I saw it actually later on because I think I was too young to see it in the movie house. But it was very violent for its time, the idea of a vigilante who was going around just killing criminals seemingly indiscriminately. But it's a theme that we, we've seen uh, – 
many times through the years, but Death Wish was very personal in nature because it was about seeking vengeance for his family. Bruce Willis is at a different point in his career. He's less the action star that he was, but he still can very much cover and 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 hold the, the star slot and, and hold a movie. It would be interesting to see how he has evolved as an actor and uh, I'll say an action movie star and whether this movie is as personal, is as violent, and is as, I'll say, shocking in the way that the original Death Wish was. I've, I was a fan of Charles Bronson. This is going to be very difficult for someone to, I'll say, re-enter that role. I want to see whether Bruce, Bruce Willis is going to be like Charles Bronson in the way that he delivers his lines and how he manages the character or whether he can create something altogether new. Because whenever you have a, a reboot or you're doing a movie with a title which is very familiar to a large portion of people, then you run the risk of trying to satisfy different groups for different reasons and pleasing none. But I'm very curious to see how this one is going to go because Death Wish, the original, was very uh, a popular movie for me and, and my age group, and I think this could do the same. Now, I'm not sure that I used to have a rule. Well, actually, I still have a rule. I, I try to stay away from uh, – I, I say that Hollywood should stay away from doing remakes of classics or cult classics. I'm not sure Death Wish rose to the level – the original – of either, I think it has become more popular in in more recent years, but it, I don't know if it's either. So I think there's more room for this remake to be better received and not weighed down by the expectations of it matching up to the original. Because it was so long ago. Be, because one, it was so long ago, and it was not as popular as other movies of the genre. I don't think, and I don't think people are as familiar with Charles Bronson today as other people from other remakes. Remakes more recently have had to do with more recent movies, it seems. Like when they did a remake of Point Break or just about every Patrick Swayze movie. Well, they did did they, a, and they just did a remake of Blade Runner. Well, no, actually, that was a, um, a sequel. That oh, because it has a Blade Runner, like 2049 or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it, it was a continuation of that storyline. Oh, I didn't and, see that one either. Yeah, well, you know, you didn't miss too much as far as I was concerned. Well, it won Academy it, Awards, didn't it? Yeah, so what? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and, and a movie won Best Picture for a fish having sex with a woman. So, I mean, come on. No, she was a fish too. Stop giving away. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Stop giving it away. It, it's already won the Academy Award if you haven't seen it yet. Mm. Mm. And also, that's all up for interpretation, so I didn't give anything <laughs> There you go. I love how you sort of backtrack on it. Boop, boop, mm-hmm. boop. The other movie I definitely want to talk about, which I did see, was A Wrinkle in Time. That's Ooh. the Ava, Duvernay, Ava DuVernay picture. Um, hey, were you watching that during the Academy Awards? Were you there? What that's, do you mean? So at the Academy Awards, you know, when they went across the street, and handed stuff out? No. Oh, so they were doing a, a showing or a screening of A Wrinkle in Time, and I was thinking about you because the day before you had given away tickets to it on your show, and I went, oh, I wonder if that's the screening. No, it was actually the next day. It was oh, okay. on the Monday. All right. Never mind. Saw it Monday. And? 
how should I say this? It's not for adults. Really? You look at Disney movies in the past five, six years, be it uh, an animated version like Pixar or whatever, there's usually humor or storylines which are for the adults having nothing to do with the seemingly kid-like friendliness of the movie. There's something in it for adults and children. A Wrinkle in Time is purely for kids. That's interesting that Disney's doing that because they're known for they're no, they're right. known for that. I mean, like look at Beauty and the Beast. There were so many jokes in that that kids are, like had no idea what's going on, and the adults are like, ah. There, there's none not of that. So much, huh? Not so much. Not so much. Not only is there a kid centric cast, uh, one of the principal actors is maybe eight years old and delivering most of the lines, as, and is a central component um, of the movie. It's pacing. It's probably more appreciated by kids than adults. It, it, and even Ava DuVernay, when we saw the screening, she had a short little vignette at the beginning saying, hopefully this movie takes you back to when you were some 10 years old and you remembered being a child and what it was like growing up. So she put it out there. She made it very clear that this is about a time in one's life, which is long ago. Maybe we could harken back to that and enjoy the movie for what it was. But it definitely did not have anything for adults. I mean, there were some messages in there. But as far as comedic value, entertainment value, I can't speak for anyone else. I'm not saying it was a bad movie. I just think it was a movie that which was not for me. And I don't think that any adult who's looking for something in it in the way that we've seen adult things or sort of comedy or themes which are specifically for the adults in other Disney or Pixar movies. It's not there. And if anything, it might be Disney turning back to when they used to do movies, which were purely for the kids, like maybe Herbie the Love Bug or something, which were just about kids, not adults, Escape to Witch Mountain or whatever, just about kids, nothing for us. And that I will say A Wrinkle in Time is very much about it's about celebrating kids. It's about kids finding their way. It's about kids saving the universe with no help from adults at all. As far as the cast, Reese Witherspoon, Oprah Winfrey, I thought Oprah was okay. And I was talking about this. I think it was Blake. Was I talking about it with you? Or maybe you were talking it was to John. John. Movie. That's right. John yeah. Ramirez. Yeah. Oprah is very dry in this movie. Very, very dry. And I know what she's capable of. Because she has a litany of films in which she's been in and, and Oscar-worthy in terms of performances. This is not that. Reese Witherspoon, kind of funny at times. You see her in a very different light. She plays a role which is very unlike anything else that she's done. But it wasn't anything spectacular. I guess that's what it comes down to. I just was not wowed by the movie. There were some visual elements of the movie which I thought were very pleasing. There are some landscapes which they show and they create a fantastic world in the sense of, hey, I would like to visit it. But from the pacing of the story, you didn't spend a whole lot of time there. You didn't get to see the magnificence of that backdrop and the world in which these children visit. You didn't get to explore it in the way that I hoped I would get to. In other words, if you saw the previews and you've seen the trailers you see this world which has been created by Ava DuVernay, which is visually spectacular, absolutely. 
I wish I just could have stayed there just a little bit longer. And I have a problem with the movie where there's a whole lot of walking and a whole lot of talking. There was a whole lot of both in this movie. It probably will do very well its first weekend, but after word of mouth gets out about the movie as far as how people feel about the pacing and and the performances, it's going to have a steep fall off. Just got to be honest. I I didn't hate it, but I definitely didn't love it. If you were a parent of a young child, would you love it? The parent? Probably not. The child will probably enjoy it. And I think I do think it's good that they make some movies for kids. Yeah, it truly is. I think it would have been perfect on the Disney Channel. It would have been perfect maybe as a uh, a direct-to-video. I'm not so sure that it's a, a box office blockbuster release given the way it was marketed. I had higher expectations going in, you know, specifically because of how it was marketed in terms of size and scope fanfare and I'm also I'm a fan of Ava DuVernay as a director so I went in completely willing to accept it as a good movie and enjoying it and you know a good hour in it's like golly there's too much damn walking too much damn talking they're not going anywhere <laughs> with it and, and this, uh, they're long soliloquies and paragraphs of dialogue and I would rather you show me as opposed to tell me It's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie. It's just a movie. And I think if I were eight years old as opposed to 48, I might have loved it. I might have. But, yeah, it it wasn't for me. It wasn't meant for you, Amy King. It wasn't meant for you, Blake. And I think if you have a child or a young niece or nephew or someone in the age group of maybe 8 to 12, yeah, they, they could enjoy it. They probably could get into it. They probably could get into seeing this very young, talented actor who's the central point of the movie, uh, plays the character of Charles Charles Wallace. He's a good actor, not a great actor, but I know when I was a kid, I liked to see people my age on screen. There's a degree of relatability there, and I think that will work well for certain demographics. But as an adult, you're probably not missing too much. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Hey, why don't we give away some more tickets to the iHeartRadio Music Awards? How about you and a guest? It's the award show you can control. You can control. Our 2018 iHeartRadio Music Awards is Sunday, this Sunday, March 11th, at the Forum in LA. You'll be treated to performances from Bon Jovi, Ed Sheeran, Maroon Five, Cardi B. And the Innovator Award honoree, Chance the Rapper. It's going to be hosted by DJ Khaled and also Haley Baldwin. The only award show in the world that celebrates your love of music. So if you would like to go, you and a guest, go to the forum this Sunday for the iHeartRadio Music Awards. Why don't you give us a call right now? 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. If your caller six, you and a guest We'll be going to the iHeartRadio Music Awards, 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Now, Amy King has the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. 
Gary and Shannon show. Mo Kelly here for Gary and Shannon as we get closer to the weekend. Okay, I need to go back and revisit something in an, an unfortunate occurrence in the program. My Google Assistant let me down. And people like Blake Doan wanted to mock me, saying that he was an iPhone fanboy or something like I that. I don't believe saying that. No, I don't believe I did. What did you say? I said something about good thing your androids are so awesome. Uh-huh. It was something along those lines. And mine, all I say is simply for the reactions because you care so much more about your Android than I do about my iPhone. And you know, there is a study which confirms this. The study, was, and this was published at TheVerge.com, a new study done by Consumer Intelligence Research Partners says that Android users, such as myself, have higher brand loyalty than iOS users. The report says that not only as Android loyalty has been rising since early 2016, it's currently the highest it's ever been. And to measure current loyalty to each platform, the study looked at the percentage of U.S. customers who stayed with their operating system after upgrading their phones in 2017. Yes, I upgraded my phone in 2017, and I stayed with Android because the platform is superior to iOS. And who is it you said who called in to talk mess, Blake? Who is oh, it? Joe Kwan. Never heard of her. <laughs> Never heard of her. Does she work here or something? <laughs> I, I don't know. Who is that person? She did work here. Uh, she she big-timed us. She's all TV news now. Oh, oh. no, I, I'm not familiar. <laughs> yeah, for, former KFI reporter and news anchor, yes. But she texted me. She's so, an iPhone fangirl. I believe it was hashtag iPhone forever is what the text had in it. Forever. Yeah. Does she have an iPhone 10 or is she using I, a phone which is being throttled right about I now? I couldn't tell you. Oh, it'd be I good don't to know. know. Nick, do you have an iPhone 10 or are you being throttled right no, now? No, I have the iPhone 6S Plus. So you're getting throttled right now. That's what I have too. I guess so. Same but I, I think I think the 6S Plus is where they peaked because the button, you know, the home button uh-huh. still pushes. It has that tactile feedback. I don't like after that, you know, it's just touch it with your finger. It doesn't click. And now they've done away with it entirely. So I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm happy with this. Have you thought about trying to get a replacement battery in the near future since you know that they are throttling your phone since you have an iPhone? I have not. I have also not updated it in a while. Uh, So I don't know if that Uh plays into it. Because, you know, sometimes I'll get a text and I'll get, you know, a a question mark with a box. I'm like, what did you just send me? Some emoji that my phone can't even comprehend yet. So. What, what exactly, again, does the throttling do? Because I have 6S Plus. Mm -hmm. I do all the updates. And I've never had a single problem with my phone. The story went that iPhone was slowing down the ability of older iPhones because, according to Apple, they wanted to make sure that your phones, due to de- decreased battery, mm-hmm. uh, optimal usage, whatever, there was a feeling that using the, the latest Apple stuff may overload your system and brick your phone. So, like, my apps would run slower, my, like, yes. browser would run slower. They're that yes. making stuff? you buy a new... Yes, your operating system product. would slow down altogether. Huh. To encourage you to buy a new phone, I would say, Apple said that no... They're protecting us. Yes. Oh, that's nice of them. And they then, in response to that, offered uh, people who were upset at their 
iPhone being throttled that right. you could get um, a new battery. Because oh. I never, I didn't, I've never experienced anything. Now maybe they did it so slowly, the throttling or whatever, that I became accustomed to it. Maybe. I don't know if that's a possibility. But I have you done all the updates? Yeah, every single oh, one. Okay. And I've never, I've never had a single issue. I've never really gotten, you know, mad. Did at you get my the phone. funky A letter too, or did you not get that? Oh no, it did that, but oh, okay. that's a simple keyboard uh, switch that you. It took like five seconds for me to fix it. See, on Android, we can pick our own keyboard, any style we want. No, can you do that on iPhone? I don't even know what that means. We can change can our keyboard. Customize. We can change the look yeah. of it. Customize it and everything. Now, see, oh, I'm, not, no. I'm not huge into, I don't, I don't feel the need to customize or, you know, have certain special features. I'm just happy with the basics. And I think iPhone does that well. Wow, you have low expectations of life, <laughs> don't you? You eat the same thing for breakfast every day, don't you? Uh, Sure. You don't want to like just put some pepper. I don't know. See, I feel like that was chili powder. Remember when iPhone and the iTouch came out, and <laughs> you know what I mean. And and the big Spice thing, it up. the big thing, because you couldn't customize it was you could jail people were jailbreaking it. Mm-hmm. You know, so they could add different apps and things like that. I don't feel the need or the desire to do that anymore. I feel like I'm kind of like it was kind of it was cool, and I don't know. I'm just kind of over that. Like for Are me. You, I, I'm trying to suggest that because you're more mature now, you move to an iPhone. Are you actually trying to talk down and condescend to Android users? You're saying that because you're more mature, you don't feel the need to customize your phone. You're past that phase in your life. Is that what you're insinuating? Is that what you're implying? Because that's what I'm inferring. No. Just want to make sure. Because I was getting ready to get offended. I mean, you're cool with your Android. I think I'm If that's what you're into. I think I'm along... (laughs) I think I'm in the same general area as Nick. Like for me, I don't I don't sit on my phone for hours at a time, and I don't do I don't need it for a lot. I use very specific things. I go on, you know, Instagram, Facebook, fancy football app, and I'm pretty much out after that. Like I don't do a lot on it. So I think because of that, I don't need it to be able to have all these customizations, all these different options, this and that, because I don't really care. I'm never on it long enough for that to make a difference. Oh, I care about that stuff. I like my my landing screen, my home screen, right. to be customized in a certain way where my apps are grouped relative to my need, uh, my finger position, what I'm going to use more often than others, all that kind of well, stuff. You, can do, you, you know you can do that on an iPhone. You know you can move the, the quote moving of the apps Not for, moving the apps. for I can, thumb position. I can make my home screen look like anything I want. Right. Make it very simple. Yeah, you can move your apps around. That's so cute. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. iPhone finally figured out that make you can group apps and, and put them in groups. And it, yeah, it little rails around the edge. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about making it very specific to you as a person. An extension of your personality. What's wrong with you folks? Well, Who are you showing your phone off to where you need your personality to shine through? On your phone, through your phone. Do you brush your hair or brush your teeth for other people, first and foremost? <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm single. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. But the thing about the Android, that has, you can, uh, does it have an SD card? Is there a removable uh, store? Not an SD card, but you can, is there a? Microcard. Right. Uh, it depends on the phone. Okay, because the iPhone, you can't do that. They make you upload everything to your cloud, and then all your cloud storage is, you know, all used up, get more. So I do like the ability to, you know, the freedom to, to be able to store where you want to store your information where you want and pull it off easily. No, we can do the Android because it's an adjunct of the Google 
ecosystem. Yeah. All of my stuff is on the Google Cloud. Even though and- you can't send alarms on it. <laughs> um, this is the Gary and Shannon show. Daylight saving is coming up. Remember, <laughs> keep that in mind. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. But you can't prepare more than 24 hours in advance, so this is true. KFI AM 640. Anyone else? Anyone? Anyone? I think we're done. Bueller? Bueller? Amy King with the news. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Mel Kelly here in for Gary and Shannon as we head into the weekend. Remember how we were talking about the drunkest states in America? California rang in at number 22. Number one was North Dakota. But, but, there is an opportunity here, and I put that in quotation marks. There's an opportunity for California to move up that list. That is if SB 905 is passed. That would be the 4 a.m. bar bill. Last call for customers at bars would be around 3.30, with bars staying open until 4 a.m. Now, it would be like a pilot program where it would be first used in or implemented in L.A., West Hollywood, Long Beach, Sacramento, San Francisco, and Oakland. But can we just go ahead and skip to the end and realize that's a really bad idea? It's a really bad idea. I don't care what they do in New York. They have a much better subway system. They have a much better mass transit system. You can live in New York and not have a car. But it's a bad idea to allow people to drink legally at bar establishments until almost 4 a.m. in the morning, and then try to find their way home somehow. I really would rather not get on the road with people who've been drinking, presumably, since 10 o'clock that night. There is no upside to keeping California bars open to 4 a.m. I don't care what they do in other spots around the country. I don't care what they do in Florida. I don't care what they do in Louisiana. What we do here in California is of the utmost importance to me. It's bad enough that we can't even drive on the freeways if and when it rains. And given the forecast for this weekend might be rain, well, that ought to tell you all hell is going to break loose on the freeways. And you want to introduce the possible possibility or likelihood of people drinking until 4 a.m.? No, no. No. And Deborah Marcus looking at me, hey, I'm all for it. No, no, <laughs> no. Not me. And this is going to, I don't see any reason why this wouldn't pass. They've been working on this for years. And when it comes down to it, it is still all about the money. Yes, businesses, establishments, they will make money if you allow them to sell liquor for longer hours. It's real easy to figure out. There is really no argument, though, to make saying that it's not going to impact quality of life. It clearly is in a negative fashion. And there's certain things which are just not good ideas. And it's not because I'm a, a worry ward or a Debbie Downer. I just have some common sense. I'm a, I'm a Debbie Downer. You're looking at me, so I'll just say I, I admit I am a Debbie Downer. I don't really drink very much. I'm really, really boring. But even if you did, I mean, I'm someone, I'll have a glass of wine. 
I mean, I don't imbibe like I used to, but I also know what happens. I was that guy, that knucklehead in the club. Oh, you were? At 12 Did you take your clothes off and do all that too? I was that guy in the club. <laughs> yeah. That knucklehead. Mm-hmm. And all I know is if I had the opportunity to do worse, I would have done worse, especially in my 20s. And I'm not saying that not everyone is going to be of the mind to make bad decisions, but it only takes one idiot. And I like to be able to lessen the likelihood of idiots doing what idiots do. Oh, yeah. We don't need any more idiots. No. We have enough. There's there's no upside to people drinking at 4 a.m. in a bar establishment. And people complain, and I have a lot of friends on the East Coast, and I go to the East Coast, so I understand the allure of having after-hours places or clubs which are open all night. In Miami, you can do that. But you can walk up and down Miami. You don't need to drive anywhere. In L.A., you cannot function without a car. We have a a, a subway system that doesn't even go to the airport directly. We are now, yes, we do have Uber and Lyft and and rideshare applications, which may lessen it, but it doesn't mean they're going to say, hey, open season at the bar all night long. No. I kind of admire people, though, that want to hang out until four in the morning. I was just never one of those people. So <laughs> I, I, I just it, it's just something I can't really relate to. Oh, but I, I think it would be kind of fun. Oh, I used to be an all-nighter. Let me tell you, when they say nothing good happens after three in the they morning. They mean it. They lied. It's like nothing happens after like 1130. Well, except for that one time uh-huh. in that elevator. Uh, yeah, never mind. Never mind. iHeartRadio Music Awards. Right now, you can win tickets, you and a guest. You can go to the iHeartRadio Music Awards this Sunday, March 11th, at the Forum here in L.A. Where I'm talking about performances from Bon Jovi, Ed Sheeran, Maroon 5, Cardi B, Chance the Rapper's going to be there, DJ Khaled and Haley Brown. They're going to be hosting the only award show in the world that celebrates your love of music. If you would like to go, you and a guest, call her 6 right now at 800-520-1KFI, 800 Three, four, caller six, you and a guest, iHeartRadio Music Awards, John and Ken, coming up next. I'm out of here. Check me tomorrow at 6 p.m. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. L-A-T-T, I-H-T-B-D. Look at the time. I have to be going. Gary and Shannon. Home, where families connect and memories are made. Find your new home with PenFed, a mortgage partner who brings confidence and value to your home buying experience. They offer low rates and no lender fees and can even help you find a real estate agent through their trusted partners. Let PenFed bring you home. Visit PenFed.org slash home or call 1-800-970-7766. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.